I'm Mary Angela Abeo, and this is the Face to Faces podcast, a conversation series that provides a platform focusing on the LGBTQ and POC communities and their allies in the areas of activism, politics, mental health, arts and entertainment, and community. In this space, we discuss the human experience in our ever-changing world. My goal here is to remind you that while you may have moments where you feel isolated and alone, there is always an incredible community of people here that is safe. We all connect to people at our deepest pains and our greatest joys. And in this space, we're here for those moments and everything in between. I'm so glad you're here. Take a seat next to me. It's always open. Now, let's lean in. Okay, I am so excited. This is episode two, the second episode um, in our adoption series around mental health and suicide loss in this space. And my guest today, again, is Moses Farrow, who is in the previous episode, Face in the Faces of Fortitude Project, Carlos Dillard is here, who's been on other episodes before, and joining us from, I believe, Asia, uh, Jasenia is here joining us as well. Thank you all for being here. It's a really heavy topic, but it's also really important, and I really wanted to bring the topic of mental health and suicide in the adoptee space to the light, because I think it's not heard currently even being spoken about. So let's start um, with Jasenia and then Carlos and then Moses and introduce yourselves and how you're connected to this topic. Hi everyone, my name is Jasenia Parmer. I go by the pronouns she and her. Um, I'm the founder of I Am Adopted. I have been working with adoptees and adoptive families for over a decade and I specifically work with adoptees in mental health and wellness and suicide prevention. as most people know that are working in this adoption space, adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide than those not adopted. And um, in my experience working with adoptees, I believe that the number is much higher. Every day I receive tons of messages from adoptees discussing um, the reality that there's a real issue with um, adoptee suicide and struggle with mental health. And it is my job to be there for adoptees. And I go by the simple math of listen and validate, and that will save lives for adoptees. Sorry, I had to cough. Okay, don't worry. Hi, guys. Uh, My name is Carlos Dillard. I go by he, him, that bitch. Um, Either one, just if you're going to call me a bitch, put that in front of it. Uh, I am an adoptee myself. I am a transracial adoptee. I uh, am an author of a book called Water of the State, Memoir of Foster Care. Um, and in my adulthood, what I've tried to do is like Jessica, what you do, or uh, Justine, I'm sorry. Um, what you do is amazing. I think like how closely that you give back your energy to the kids uh, directly and, and you give an open space for them to talk. That's something that like I strive to do, but it's just like, it's a lot of like my own pressure. So I just I give up so much more praise to other adoptees who hold space and a safe space for people. Uh, What I've decided to do is use my voice and something that everyone seems to like to listen to. So I use it to spread light on those issues. So um, 
I do a lot of comp stand-up comedy, and my my comedy I actually made up my own kind of genre. It's called PISA. P I S A is the acronym, and it stands for Politically Incorrect Social Awareness. Um, and then my like Emma's seen or heard some of my comedy, and it's really like it's funny, but it's all of it's gonna just smack you in the face with facts about foster care, four times the rate of um, suicide the uh, homeless facts, like everything that I went through that we all know the facts and everyone, like you said, they don't want to know about, about the issues. So what's the best place to educate someone at the comedy club. And it's actually really, really, it's a cool, it's like a cool way to educate people on a really serious, um, really serious thing because it is very serious. Uh, so yeah, that's what I do. I just started a fundraiser here in Seattle called SOS sense of self fundraiser, uh, where we give hygiene packets and hygiene containers to local, uh, local foster agencies here in Seattle. And we started to reach out and collaborate with other agencies throughout the country. Um, so yeah, I'm really just trying to spread. I, my, my thing is I call it spread light and spread love and share your voice. So, um, I use my any platform I can to just spread spread the word uh, and try to get creative with it because you know we got TikTok we got all these different platforms <laughs> that we can really harness and educate a lot more people so that's what I strive to do. Love it, and Moses. Very 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 cool. Um, so I am Moses Farrow. Uh, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I've been in the field about twenty years at this point. Uh, working specifically in the adoption field uh, for the last decade um, and really coming out of the fog uh, in a way um, where I had started off working in an adoption agency, uh, providing uh, post-adoption services, uh, counseling, um, summer programs, uh, trainings and all, uh, all that for parents uh, and adoptees and professionals. Um, and uh, as I've taken a deeper dive into myself, um, I've realized that really my passion and my focus needs to be on adoptees, for adoptees, with adoptees, uh, and really building a sense of community um, uh, that shines a light on adoption trauma that brings um, to light uh, the need for mental health advocacy. Uh, and I, I'm just so pleased to share the space with um, both Yesenia and uh, Carlos. Uh, it's really been um, wonderful to see so many of us come to the forefront uh, to say we need to be seen, heard, and validated. Um, this is the way we need to end generational trauma. We need to end the stigma around suicide. We need to um, really end um, uh, the unnecessary layers of traumatic losses that we experience um, and the subsequent uh, trauma responses that we'll get into, I'm sure, uh, going forward. But um, that's really where I'm sitting at this point. I have a personal passion to elevate, to raise uh, adoptive voices um, when it comes to mental health, suicide, prevention, um, and uh, to address this uh, adoption trauma um, and seeking adoption reform in terms of the practices 
uh, and human rights issues. Uh, so there's so much work, there's so much to be done. Um, love that it is a shared space and really looking forward to getting into um, this conversation. Yeah, I think, oh, first of all, thank you all for that. And thanks for being here. Moses, I think um, you, you said something when you said came out of that fog. And we talked about it in the previous episode, but I think I'm not sure um, if everyone knows this, but um, you have lost three siblings who were also adopted to suicide. And so you talk about that adoption fog that you have to come out of. And I've never heard that term until you said it. So I would love it if you could break that down a little bit and then maybe Jasenia and Carlos could give us some feedback on how they have experienced that. Mm -hmm. oh, boy, uh, we don't have enough time, I don't think, to really go into the depths of it. Uh, but uh, on, on the whole, uh, especially with transracial uh, adoptees, I would say that there are extra layers to... Um, you know, you had been talking about gaslighting, um, our experience. Um, Jasenia has brought up uh, the invalidation of our experience. Uh, it's really um, bringing to light uh, two or three main things about being transracially adopted. So one is our uh, cultural and racial identity. We're, we're pretty much whitewashed. That's the term, you know, where... We don't get to see ourselves through our cultural lens, through our racial lens. We get to see it through the lens of our adoptive families or really our adoptive parents. Um, and there is this uh, overarching um, reality that it is mostly white uh, couples or white parents adopting uh, um, children of color. Um, and uh, there is this ongoing controversy of, well, how much culture do we introduce to our family, to their, you know, to their lives? Um, so there's that cultural, racial aspect of coming out of the fog. That is a huge one where we internalize this implicit racism. We don't like to see ourselves as people of color. I didn't see myself as Asian until much later in life um, when someone had to point it out. Oh, you're a minor. Um, that was news to me um, in a number of ways. Um, so it's really this process of what I, what I consider bringing together our reality, our truths, unveiling them, peeling back these layers um, of these like accepted social narratives that are put on us. Um, and uh, it's, I'm finding to be a very necessary process. And if we can help adoptees achieve this coming out of the fog at an earlier age, they're gonna be so much better off uh, later on in life where the rest of us we've struggled for decades with a range of different issues, depression, anxiety, uh, toxic relationships, addiction, suicide ideation. I mean, just a range of things that all have to do with this idea of adoption trauma. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's, 
really kind of encapsulating it. Do you two have anything to add to that as far as your fog and what you kind of, how you came out of it? Um, I think Moses did a great job describing what it means to come out of the fog. Um, I will say that not all adoptees are in the fog. Um, myself, I don't identify as being in the fog. Um, I've known I was adopted as probably since I was five. I don't look anything like my family. I was adopted transracially. Um, it always hurt to be adopted. I endured abuse in my adoptive home. Um, I always knew I wasn't wanted. So there was never that peace or that feeling for me that felt like, oh, I love being adopted or this feels good to be adopted. It always hurt me. It always, I always struggled with suicidal ideation for as long as I can remember. I always had issues with depression, anxiety. So I'm not someone that identifies as coming out of the fog, but with my experience with other adoptees, a lot of them do. Um, have that experience of relating to coming out of the fog. And like Moses said, it's essential for adoptive parents to um, be educated on um, the issues that adoptees face, on trauma, on loss, on grief, um, race issues as well, and what it means to support an adoptee of color. Um, this way it makes that transition um, a lot easier as a child grows up and they don't feel those effects um, as harshly as they do when you're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old coming out of the fog where it's like compounded trauma over and over again, where it's really just beyond difficult. And I believe those adoptees struggle more with their mental health than those that maybe um, have always felt that way because it's like an, an awakening at 40, 50 years old, like, oh my God, what the hell is happening? You're having like three times a midlife crisis. It's so interesting that you that you explain like how you never were in the fog because I kind of feel like I have a mixture of both. Um, mm -hmm. My parents purposely let me know that I was a black man. They said they always used to tell their neighbors, "Yes, we adopted a black child because from the inner city of Detroit because we're going to make one of them at least go to go to Princeton, go to Harvard." Um, my parents drilled it into me that I was going to be that black man. This is before Barack, but you will be the first gay. And I was already out, so I was already gay. So they didn't have a problem with that, but they like they drilled it into me that I wouldn't. They literally just erased all of my blackness. I was a I was adopted when I was ten, so I had a lot of just who I was just from growing up in the inner city. So when you think about the fog, it really wasn't kind of like a fog. It was kind of like they were telling me like, hey, this is. They were trying to break down who I was and rebuild up a new person or a new child that was in their liking. And I even went through like reattachment therapy and all of like really just traumatic type of things for them to break me down and rebuild me up. So it's really interesting to hear both of your guys' perspectives. Uh, and mine is kind of like a little bit opposite because they purposely let me know that I was different and that that's something that I've struggled with all, uh, to this day. Like I still talk about it to my therapist and who am I as a black man? Who am I as a gay man? Is this, is this who I am because this is who I want to be? Or is this who I am because someone has tried to make this is who, I want, who, mm -hmm. who I'm supposed to be? Um, so that's just something that I just thought was very enlightening that you both said. Yeah. I think that the common thread here is, is, you know, it sounds like every single one of you has had suicidal ideation and mental illness because of this level 
the many levels of trauma. And um, I had no idea this is until Moses came to me and a little bit of Carlos, because, you know, Carlos talks a lot more about the foster care system as far as and his adoption. But I didn't know the numbers. I had no idea. And knowing that the numbers are not only on the rise, but like triple, right? I mean, it's, it's, horrifying. And so, of course, I've got all of these connections in the suicide community. And Moses was like, can we make a connection here? Can we get somebody to listen to us? And remember what I said, Moses, in that pre-meeting, I was like, no problem. Yeah, no, it's a total problem. The fact that I reached out to people from AFSP, from um, the American Association of Suicidology, and I got blown off. It wasn't an issue. It wasn't a priority. And that is absolutely asinine to me. Yeah. What is happening? Can I get my personal opinion? Yes, please. Um, it, I mean, there's, I'm not a doctor. Like I, I have nothing. This is my personal opinion. Uh, I think people don't, and people think once you get adopted, everything's peachy king. And it's, that's why when you say I only focus on foster care, uh, I do focus on adoption a little bit, but foster care is where I find that that's where we can make the change. Um, I'm, I'm pro rehabilitation reunification. So I, I honestly don't even believe in adoption, especially transracial adoption. I think people should stay with the people who gave birth to them and we should do our best to make sure that they stay who with, and that's rehabilitation of drugs, alcohol, mental disease, whatever the parents might have, and then reunification. There is a place for foster care. There are places for adoption in certain stances, uh, but that's why I focus on uh, foster care more than I do on adoption. Um, I, I just don't think like it's, they don't care because once you get adopted, you got adopted. And especially by white folks, why are you complaining? That's pretty much yeah. what they think. <laughs> yeah. If, if I may, to piggyback on that, Carlos, um, people need to care. That's the, that's the crux of it is we have kids, as Jacenny pointed out, we have kids who are thinking about uh, ending their lives, about not existing anymore. I mean, why aren't people caring about that? Why aren't people caring that there are lives lost? in the adoptee community. Now, I'm gonna put out a few things because this has is, this is become you know, a growing passion of mine that it's really important for people in these spaces, um, you know, as Em pointed out, you know, in this suicide prevention space because at least in this country alone, in the United States, there's between five and seven million adopted people living here, right? That, that's a constituent, right? I mean, like, that's a large enough community to say, we need to do something. We need to help them. We need to find support. We need to, um, uh, you know, prevent uh, suicides in that community. Uh, to your point, Carlos, um, there is a report from the UN that states 80% of kids in orphanages aren't actually orphans where there's no living relative, right? I mean, like if we use the uh, dictionary definition of orphan, uh, they have a living relative or a living parent. 80% of or orphans in orphanages um, 
aren't orphans. So the UN is on that track with you to say, we need to dig into our societies and our communities and our social constructs and support these parents and support these families staying together. You know, we shouldn't be banking on, that's a bad way to put it, we shouldn't be, um, you know, pointing out that, you know, it's a poverty, you know, issues of poverty or issues of addiction or, or issues of domestic violence. I mean, let's support these families staying together. Um, and let's really dig in and, you know, what I'm going to bring it back to, it's really addressing the generational trauma. You know, we, we have to keep the ball rolling. We have to think about our kids and future, gen, future generations. Um, you know, all of our experiences are just uh, pre- so preventable. Um, if only somebody outside of the adopted community cared because they have the resources, they have the knowledge, they have the research. And M, I got to tell you, like the, the statistic that you, that you bring it back to, adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide. That's a 2013 statistic. That's, that is, you know, seven years ago at this point. And thankfully we have, you know, people like Carlos and Jesenia, adoptees advocating and supporting and saying we need the resources and we, we need help. Um, we are self-advocates, essentially, of ourselves. That's something that needs attention on. We need, we talk about this idea of community and it takes a village and we can't do this alone. And especially in the suicide uh, circles, that it takes connection it takes um, the idea uh, you're not alone. We don't want to feel alone in advocating for ourselves. So it, I hope that this might be a springboard for the folks at AFSP uh, and the American uh, uh, Association for Suicidology to say, hmm, yeah, we missed the boat on, you know, this time, but we'll make sure to make it up later. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful for that. Yeah. Um, how real can we get here? All, <laughs> this real, all the cursing, all the real, ask Carlos, bring, there are no bring it, bring it, bring it, Jacenia. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm going to go there. Um, it's yeah. very painful to say this, but and as you said, uh, Moses and I and a number of others have really been in the trenches doing this work. And we've been knocking on doors left and right everywhere for years to be heard. Nobody cares. We're shut down. Emails don't get responded to. Phone calls don't get returned. People do not care about what we're going through. And as for myself, I, I can't remember when I haven't thought about suicide. It's just something, it's like a part of my identity almost. I've, as a child, I've thought about it. I've 
prayed about not waking up um, every morning for years. And talking with adoptive parents, trying to educate the public, I'm always met with resistance. I'm bullied online talking about it. I'm told that it's just me when I'm like, no, I have like people think of like, if you let out the whole black book of secrets of something, I have like a whole black book of secrets of adoptees that confide in me every day because I live my life out loud on the platforms talking about suicide and mental illness of adoptees saying that they struggle with it. And that's why I said, I believe the numbers are way higher than four times more likely. And as Moses said, that was in 2013. Things have changed. The climate has changed between um, race issues, um, now the pandemic, just everything is crazy. The numbers are way higher. And for me, as like I said, it's hard for me to say this, but it, since I'm so deep in the trenches, it got to a point for me that I'm like, what do I need to do to get you guys to understand that adoptees are dying because we're not hurt? And it got so bad that in my last attempt of trying to take my life, I contemplating writing a note to the adoption industry, addressing it to them, saying that I choose to take my life because you guys won't listen. It's like, how plain, how bold do we have to make it for you guys to pay attention to what we're saying? It's like we're screaming out into the world, help save us, listen to us. We don't want to die. We just want to be heard. We want to be validated. We want people to listen. We need resources. All adoptees are crying out for resources by trained therapists, which there's only a handful that understand adoption trauma. And it's not until people start caring outside of the adoption community, we're going to continue to lose lives. Like, I don't even, at this point, I don't even know what more to do um, except continue to stay in the trenches, continue to lean on people that want to invest in us to hear our voices like you are allowing us to share this platform and highlighting our voices and just hoping that we could build community to raise awareness to save lives because if we wait on the adoption industry to bring us resources, it's never going to happen. If we wait on organizations to, to help us, it's never going to happen because the way the industry is built, it's a $13 billion industry. They don't want to hear about the pain and the trauma. That's going to take money out of their pockets, out of the white people's pockets that adopt, that have the predominant narrative. They're not going to listen to us. Can I just say really quickly, I'm just happy that all of you are still here. Like, it's just like, I wouldn't, not only would I've never have met you, but I think that your lived experience is what each of your lived experiences is what is going to help. And having the courage to stay when it feels like nobody cares. And, and it, in reality, in your space, no one did. Um, that's a huge, that's a huge thing to live through. That's adding another trauma to all of this trauma is what people don't realize. Their lack of caring is adding so much more trauma. You know, and then I don't even, I mean, do I even wanna add the, the black part of it? Do I even wanna add the racial pandemic that has been happening over the last hundreds of years? You know, Carlos deals with it here in Seattle so, so much. Um, and it, a lot of it, and we were talking about this the other day, Carlos, offline, that a lot of it is because 
the trauma that you dealt with as a kid, not, you know, being, making people accountable for their actions and all of that trauma you had to deal with. Now, when you're having these microaggressions and this racism happening in front of you, you refuse to let anybody get the best of you anymore. Yeah. So I overcompensate for being hurt. And like a lot of people always ask like, okay, some, yeah, that lady did something that was racist towards you, but you could have just walked away. And it's hard for me to explain to them, like, I've never been heard in my whole entire life. And as an adult, I promised, that's one thing I promised myself after I attempted my life when I was a kid was like, you're either, either kill yourself or stand up for yourself every fucking day. Mm. And don't like, and that's what I do. And even down to the extremes of it, like man, M has seen me go to the extremes of standing up for myself uh, mm. to where I'm looking down gun p- police officers with guns in my face and being like, no, sir, I'm not stand. I'm not, you're, you're wrong. And I don't care. shoot me in my face because you're wrong. Um, and it, it's just, it's just something that I, it's so interconnected, that, 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 that need to be heard, that need to be believed. Um, and I think personally, that's what, it, it's what fuels my suicidal ideations, but it also is what keeps me like going. It was like, I, I am starting to be heard now. I have, like, I built these platforms with no people. And now I have 200,000 people where I can say something and be like, like falsely, I made a TikTok like talking about how false care is racist, and I have all of these white women who are false parents being like, "Oh my God, it's racist! I didn't know this, that, and the other." And they're like, "Can you educate me?" I'm like, "Yes, I have a class and a course, 1990. <laughs> I don't right. educate white people for free, hey, but I can do it for you." Um, <laughs> but it gives me a little hope that they're actually even starting to care, or even actually yeah. even starting to want to buy a course that's ninety nine dollars from me. I don't care if it was ten cents. You're actually willing. To to pay because you see the value in what I have to say. So that's actually also, it's the same, it's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. So yeah. uh, I don't know, I, I just, and another thing I wanna do, I have it on my notes, like one thing that really pushes my buttons and that makes me just as an adult, just hate that I was adopted is that it is the one relationship that I can never get rid of legally. Mm. And that's one thing that's like every time M has seen what I've gone through when I published my book, my adoptive parents tried to sue me and mm. tried to keep me from getting my word out. And it's just like, I literally was like, I just wanted to just be gone. Like I can't even write my story yes. without being shushed. And it was, it was just like the most emotional thing I've ever gone through. Cause I spent five years writing this book. It's an amazing book. I, I, I literally had to re go through therapy to unpack, <laughs> say about it and then repack it up, <laughs> you know? And yeah. this last thing that will always be attached to me is that, like we said, no one cares. There is no legislation to make sure that if I don't want to be connected to these people, I can just go to the court and be like, it didn't work out. See you later. There is not like, I'm just stuck with them forever, just literally forever. And that's something that I like, I don't want. And it, it wears down on my, my mental state, which wears down on just being a productive adult, which wears down on like suicidal thoughts. So it's just like, it's all connected. It's just yeah. like, <laughs> it's just all connected. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like it's a, it's a cyclical process if you all aren't getting, and that's what I want to shift into now is, you know, what does reform look like? What does help 
look like in the suicide and mental health space? You know, are there, what do you envision um, that if, if someone from these orgs came to you or let's say they're listening because I'm going to make sure it's in all of their inboxes, just let me let you know, like, it will be in their inboxes. It will be addressed to them. I will say you are mentioned. Your org is mentioned and not in a good light. And I'm just letting you know. And, you know, what does it look like if they're listening? What do you need to, because I think a lot of people will go, oh, we'll help. We see it. Now, I'm a, I'm a Capricorn. I'm an Earth sign with an Aries moon. And so I have lists, but I also am on fire about it. So, like, what, let's systematically break down what we need what you need. Anyone? I can talk about um, what we need as adoptees. Um, When I'm asked, how do we prevent adoptee suicides? My first answer is family preservation. If we don't separate children from their mothers, which is the initial trauma, uh, we wouldn't have this problem in this community. We wouldn't have adoptees struggling um, with their mental health and we wouldn't have adoptees dying by suicide. Um, Wellness programs from early on, um, lifetime therapy from an adoption trauma-informed therapist, because not all therapists are alike. I'm sure we can all speak to that. Um, But specifically when it comes to um, adoption and adoptees, we still have, I have a number, several um, therapists that have messaged me like, Adoption is trauma. What is that? They have, they're clueless. And so imagine if someone who, an adoptee is struggling, talking about suicide, struggling with their mental health and goes to see a therapist and the therapist is, dismiss, is dismissing them. Doesn't even go there. When that is the initial reason that they have all of these problems, why they struggle with their mental health, why they have mental illness, it's because of this. And it's like, if we're not addressing it and therapists aren't even aware of it, um, what type of service, what type of quality of service are we providing adoptees? So that's an issue. Um, we shouldn't have to pay for therapy. We didn't ask to be adopted. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but we're continuously paying for it. We're paying for it having to be these token kids for adopted parents. We're paying for it in our struggles. We're paying for it in our identity. We're paying for it having to be poster kids for all sorts of things, whether it's in class, in school, the church, communities, um, a number of things. And then most importantly, we're paying for it in our mental health. We all know therapy is expensive as, mm. it's like, what the fuck? I mean, I pay $200 a month, I mean, $200 a session. And to do this work, <laughs> I'm not even gonna talk about the cost. Put your it's cash app on your Instagram. That's what I, <laughs> I put my cash out. All- I am adopted. Help me. Yep. And then about <laughs> once a week, expensive. just remind them, just remind them, just be like, listen, if you learned anything or have gotten any insight, run it because right. it's not cheap. I'm paying for this. I got therapy too. <laughs> yeah. So when you said that, Chris, about like paying, like, please pay us because literally I'm do- right now I'm doing a series on adoptees and mental health every day. I'm literally going through like at least 20, 30 emails of, I try to take my life. I try to take my life. I, and it's like, it's weighing on me. I'm one person, mm-hmm. you know, and people are coming to me to be heard because it's like, where else can they go to be heard? We need therapy. We need it for free. We need those resources. We need community. We need, most importantly, let me say this. 
we need adoptive parents to go to therapy before adopting. They've got their own damn issues. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just go there. They have their own issues and that needs to, to take place. And then um, they need to be educated as well. There should be a course specifically for adopted parents before you adopt, especially if you're adopting transracially, what it's like to raise a black child, what it's like to raise um, a Latino child or an Asian child. Like you have no business adopting children of color if you have no idea what it's like. So um, there needs to be training courses. There needs to be therapy for us. There needs to be wellness program for us. Um, that's what I got to say. Justina, you call me Chris, but it's, that's okay because that's my husband's oh name. Oh, my God. Everyone calls, no, everyone calls me Chris. <laughs> so I just I watched, I watched his so face. Sorry. It was cute. His face was cute. He was like, oh, well, yeah. Because I was just like, because okay. everyone no, does it. Let me tell you, I'm sorry, because our names matter. Listen, we've been <laughs> all kinds of other things to a lot of people, but our names matter. I am so sorry. Uh, sorry. Did you want to go, Moses, or did you want me? I just have a couple of things to add, and then you can round that sec You can round that topic up. I just, um, I just wanted to add to Jacinia everything that you said. Yes, therapy for everything, all of that. Um, for me, I also would add on that we need to get rid of closed adoptions. That goes oh, yeah. back to reunification and just just having that. Even if you adopt, just have that ability or that option. Um, I think we should offer reunification and co-parenting programs to adoptive parents. You do not own this child. This is not your child. You did not give birth to this child. You should not be able to legally cut off all communications. And I'll let, I understand some some cases where the parents are dangerous and that and other, but they have other family members, grandmas, aunts, mm -hmm. uncles, cousins mm -hmm. that they should be able to be in communication with. Uh, like I brought up before, adoption divorce uh that should definitely be something that we should be able to do um and then uh to piggyback of what you said justinia is we should have the same public assistance and um public offers that foster kids have um mm -hmm. i don't i never ever had agreed uh have agreed with oh you get adopted and you don't qualify for financial assistance in college food stamps medicaid mm -hmm. all the things that uh if you age out that you get um and my 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 condition is I got adopted and then my parents abandoned me. I'm still a ward of the state. Like I technically am, even though I legally have parents. I haven't seen them since I was 15. So yeah, we need to have the same. And then another piggyback when you said um, parents need to have therapy. I definitely believe that we need to have a psych check. Like we need to pay. There's yes. so much money in adoption. Like we need deep like FBI psych checks. Like <laughs> yes. like to see who these people are. I think we need to do a history check and social media history, uh, social relations. Like look at these people. If these are white, yeah. especially if they're white, check, do a psych check, check a background, not, not just see if they have good credit. I want to see if they made a racist tweet. I want to see, like, I want to see what their political view, like, I would like to see it because that will affect my placement of a child. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that those are all things that should be accessible to um, the agencies as well. Can I just say one thing? <laughs> you mentioned um, the political affiliations. Um, I, after... George Floyd died, I think I experienced one of the most traumatic things when it came with the, working with adoptees, and that's that um, really discovering that their adoptive parents are racist, that they have completely whitewashed them. And when I tried to send resources out to these adoptees, they were like, no, 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 my parents will abuse me. My parents will kill me. If a, one, one thing was a, as a book um, from a Black adoptee, 
transracial adoptee that wrote about her experience, I wanted to send this book to this one adoptee, young adoptee. She's like, no, 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 you can't send a book with a black person's face on it. I was like, what? They're like, yes, they'll abuse me. And and I was just like, these are the type of people, the type of people that are adopting black and brown kids. It's scary as fuck to know that these kids are in fear for their life because of their blackness, because of who they are, because of their race. And they're living under the home of racist people. To hear their cries on the phone with me, I had to take a break. It's crazy. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I mean, like, there are layers to answering this question. Um, I mean, the things that I think come up for me, uh, it's, you know, just yes to Carlos, yes to Jesenia, you know, but um, the direction I, I, I go in is we have an existing community that's been around for decades and we are re-experiencing the same, like the same traumas, the same issues, come up decade after decade, after decade, after research, after outcomes, after deaths. It's mind-boggling that yes, none of this is being paid attention to, but adoption continues to exist in the way that it has. And so I'm, yeah, I would love just so many more episodes to really unpack every layer because it all deserves its own space, its own time. It needs that attention, every layer to, to what we're describing, to what we're putting out there. The, the implicit racism within ourselves, within our own families, the people who choose to adopt us, right? We have what I like to call cultural castration. It is ripped away from us, our native cultures, um, our native cultural identities. At the heart of this, it is the many layers of identity that just get wiped away or stripped away or get erased and replaced, as Carlos pointed out. And it's at that social reform level, right? That's a piece of it. On the like policy and political level, it it is really putting the hammer down on we need to help these families stay together. We need to, at the very heart of it, is the relinquishment uh, lost. That's what kicks it all off. That's what, it, that's what happens before adoption. Um, and with the knowledge that we have, attachment happens in utero happens during the pregnancy. It's not even at birth. It's not at the time you make eye contact. It happens all along the way. 
Mm-hmm. And the way that I, I liken it to, it's, a, it's part of nature. Um, so when we're transplanted into someone else's garden or, you know, seeing us as a baby bird that falls out of the nest and then gets put in someone else's nest, it's unnatural. It is a life and death scenario that gets set into place for us. Catastrophic thinking. Um, all or nothing thinking. It is life or death. Um, and these adoptive parents are not at all prepared for the years of trauma healing because it's not put that way. So we need to have major educational reform within our school system. We need educational reform within our mental health systems, within our, within our medical systems. I like to point out that the ACEs study, which is the big to-do, doesn't label adoption as a risk factor, as an adverse childhood experience. Loss, divorce, separation of parents, but adoption isn't in there. And language, as we just pointed out, you know, with our names is very important. We identify ourselves as adoptees. We don't call ourselves the relinquished, right? I mean, so language is really important. We need it in our school systems. We need it in our mental health systems. We need it in our communities. So I would personally like to see, like, an adoptee day, a national adoptee day, whether we call it national adoptee awareness day. We had, I mean, so November 9th was world adoption day. And that is to promote adoption worldwide, right? To show the happy faces, the happy families that's out there. I think, I think that's what, what it was. Mm-hmm. Hashtag, you know, world adoption day, right? Um, in, in this country, we have National Adoption Day where adoptions occur all day throughout the country, right? I mean, there's so much to this adoption industry that is just self-promoting, trying to keep itself alive. Uh, so it's really, I think, critical that if we have an Adoptee Awareness Day, but it's not just us, because there's so many of us, there's really amazing, wonderful um, adoptees who are putting their stories out there, who are sharing, here's what it means to be adopted. Here's the trauma that we're experiencing, the depression, suicide, and so on and so forth, that is real to us. It'd be great to have national organizations. Uh, it'd be great to have um, you know, the State Department on a federal level the, you know, the national departments of mental health, um, you know, to really see that, yes, we have five to seven million adopted people today, but adoptions are going to continue. So this community, we're going to keep coming, right? People, uh, adoption is going to keep occurring. So we're a community that's going to keep growing and we're going to keep getting louder 
And so I'm just going to put right. a little, I'm just going to put a little plug to a nice little uh, hashtag campaign that I'm, that I'm wanting to really kick off. And so truth is louder by the way. And right. de, you know, Desenia and Carlos and so many other adoptees, we're going to continue to get louder until people start caring, until our country starts caring about us. So social reform, educational reform, policy reform. And by the way, the, these things of birth certificates, mm -hmm. that's our information. It's a human right, basic human right. You know, no need to protect other people in the adoption triad. No need to protect birth mothers or birth parents any longer, by the I way. Think, I think the most hurtful thing that has ever been connect that has ever happened to me in my life that's been connected to my adoption was when my mom and my sister, they died two years ago in a car accident, tragically, and I legally could do nothing. And I was the one paying for the whole thing. And mm -hmm. that actually caused a lot of, as you can probably tell, like riffraff between my biological siblings, because one's paying, like, it's just, it was just like, to have, to have the funeral director say, oh, that's not your mom, when like that, that, that woman gave birth to me, like mm -hmm. that's my mother. And the woman who threw me on the streets has not seen me in over almost 15 years she's the she like it's because of you <laughs> and now i can't even do one last thing for the woman who gave birth to me and like i think that's the one thing that's always going to stick out and like hurt me the most it's like when you said that birth certificate it's not just about a name of her it's a lot like i i want my mom's name on my birth certificate and i think that's my right to have yeah i think another thing um to add on to that <sighs> is we don't even have access to our own medical records. Like you have to have good reason to march up in the court to petition your own medical records. Like you have to be like, bitch, I'm bleeding, I'm about to die before you get your own medical records. That's wild. Like I've heard stories from adoptees where they literally just in time met their birth families and found out that they had um, like cancer in their family or like, uh, diseases and all kinds of different things and they were so like numerous times being misdiagnosed and the doctors weren't catching it but it was right when they met their birth families and found out their medical history their lives were safe so they would have died had they not had their medical records like we're dying because we don't have access to our medical records we're dying because we don't have access to our original birth certificates because we need our birth certificates to find out who our parents are to find out our medical history like that's crazy that's wild. I had no idea. And some of us get lucky. Like I got lucky and my mom found me on Facebook. Like it was, it was wow. just, it was complete just luck of the draw. I was 19 years old and she had just been looking for me. And um, so like, I, 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 that's a privilege that I had. Like that's something that I didn't mm. have. I mean, when you brought it up, I was like, wow. Yeah. I guess how would I have known? Because I wouldn't have known. Crazy. And it was like it was just, even just regular records. Just getting just getting your records. When I was writing my book, I requested my records, and it took almost three years for them to get me my own records. And then when I got them, half of it was redacted. It was like mm -hmm. I was like, why does my life have to be redacted? I don't understand what you're hiding from me. <laughs> right. 
it's a lot. There's so much here. And I mean, I think Moses, uh, we, we, we've been talking about this offline of making this a regular thing where we can talk about this once a month or once, you know, every few months and um, continue this conversation because I think we could go on forever, but I know we'll lose part of our audience if we go on too long. But I do think that creating a system now of what's next, I would love to work with you all and keep this conversation open, keep this platform open for you and start the process of unpacking and unveiling these steps and start making people accountable like on these platforms and saying this episode we talk about blah 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 and this is who we call out and now we are waiting for your answer and I have no problem being that voice and being that beacon and saying guess what the ball is in your court now and making and you know and um, you know if we have to use social media to gather the troops, then we will. And using hashtags and whatever, because I think, you know, uh, suicide and mental health is, it's my purpose to raise awareness around this. And this is a whole avenue that I had no idea about. And now that I know, I mean, I am not an adoptee, but I am an ally now. And now that I know I'm here for this, um, I think each one of you is doing something specific in this. And I'd love to wrap up this episode by going around and talking about your current projects and what you're doing and how people can find you on social media. And um, because I think supporting, I think right now creating safe spaces for adoptees to talk. And um, so maybe going around and saying what you're doing right now, how people can support you um, on social media and your projects, and maybe give us one piece of advice for those of us that are not adoptees if we know someone that is, how can we create a space for them and be that safe space for them um, that they might not have right now? Jacenia, do you want to start? Yeah, you can find me across all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at I am adopted. And currently I'm working on a project that's highlighting the voices of adoptees and their struggles with mental health and suicide. Um, you could find me as well. The stories are flowing in. At first, I didn't think anybody was going to participate, but it's, it's an overwhelming response now. Adoptees are becoming more and more brave as one and two stand up. So I started a second page aside from I Am Adopted, and that's Adoptee Mental Health Stories on Instagram, where every day I post two stories about adoptees um, sharing their experiences being adopted. Um, I also um, am working with Moses on some projects where we'll be collaborating. So I highly encourage you guys to follow the two of us. Um, he will share his Instagram handles for that. Um, my best advice to people that know adoptees or are adopted or you're an adoptive parent is two words. It's very simple. Listen and validate. We don't need you to figure out our problems. We don't need you to talk us out of anything. We just need you to listen to what we're saying. We need you to validate that we are hurting, that we have experienced loss, that we have experienced trauma. And just let us talk. Just sit with us and let us know that it is safe to talk with you because listening and validating saves adoptees' lives. Um, you can find me um, on Carlos Dillard. That's on all across all platforms. Uh, I have a large TikTok platform where I talk about foster care, adoption, uh, like tips and tricks. Um, I answer, I usually answer a lot of questions. 
um, from adoptive parents or parents who are planning to adopt or foster, usually the white ones who have a lot of questions about race, which I'll answer those questions for free because I'm like, all right, sis, come on, let me educate <laughs> you a little bit. Um, but right now, like I was saying earlier, I have my suitcase drive that has just really just taken off and I'm super proud of it. Um, we've connected with comfort cases uh, and we have been shipping out like hygiene boxes like crazy. So that's what I've been doing lately. Um, as far as sharing stories, I definitely think that it's important for every story to be shared. Um, and it starts off at foster care. That's when Emma's was like, and Carlos, you foster, I focus on foster care because like um, Moses was saying, it starts there. Everything starts, it actually starts in utero. I love how he said that. Yeah. It starts in utero. But <laughs> as far as the trauma, it starts at foster care. So I think for us to make adoption better, we need to understand why kids end up adopted. Uh, or needing to be adopted, if, if at all, uh, or even like Moses said, even if they are orphans. Uh, so um, you can get my story uh, at, on my website. The book is called Ward of the State Memoir of Foster Care. Um, it has so many levels on, um, it starts to touch on adoption, uh, sexual abuse, mental abuse. Um, my, I share my, my story of suicide in that book as well. Um, at a very, very young age, my first time, my first attempt. Um, but I just think it's very, like you said, like, just listen. So one, okay, so ending in, what can I say to people um, who aren't adopted, who want to learn from adoptees or give us space? Uh, besides listening and learning, I, like I said earlier, find a, find a, a mixture, like find what, what makes you absorb the most. And that's why I think what I do is so fun and creative because it's a good way to subconsciously get people to care. Like when they're just on TikTok or they're just at a comedy show and they're learning about statistics on suicide and homelessness and, and adoption and, and foster kids. Um, for people who aren't adoptees, find what makes you the most comfortable learning and just go with that. So if it's a kid on TikTok talking about it and giving you stats, and that's the best way that you can do it, do that. Um, I think for me, I think people just try to read books or listen to podcasts and not everybody, that's not, that's maybe that's not how you consume information. Find the best way to consume our stories and consume it that way. So that's what I would say. You can find me uh, a number of ways. I've got my website, mosesfarrow.com. Uh, I am on Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook page, Moses Farah for Mental Health. Um, I have a, uh, a Facebook group, uh, Surviving Adoption. Uh, I am also on Twitter, it's Moses Farrow. I am on Instagram. Um, and I wanted to specifically land on Instagram because uh, I'm there at Moses A. Farrow as well as adoption trauma. And this is really important to me, is that it's not adoption is trauma, adoption trauma, adoption trauma. There's no, there's nothing in between. It is adoption trauma. So uh, on Instagram, it's adoption trauma. And uh, I'm looking forward to the projects I'm working with Descending uh, on, as well as really putting my own uh, story out there, my 
experiences, being adopted, losing my siblings to suicide. Um, I'm putting it all out there also on YouTube. Uh, I am creating YouTube videos uh, where I read excerpts from uh, contributions I've made to books um, and just pieces of my childhood, my abuse, uh, my survivorship. Um, so uh, you can also find me on YouTube. So um, this is something that as a therapist, uh, I approach with creating safe spaces in order to address or to open up healing uh, from trauma. We have to have to feel safe. Um, and so if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, if you're just someone in the community, that need for safety should come from within. You should feel safe in order to put out a sense of safety for others. So do that work for yourself. And that's where I start is it is about building your own self-awareness, doing your work. Um, so you can be the environment for somebody else. And that comes from a quote, which I'm going to try to pull uh, off the top of my head. Um, uh, if a flower is not blooming, you don't fix the flower. You fix the environment in which it grows. Mm. And the fascinating thing is we are both the flower and the environment for each other. Mm-hmm. So that is the connectedness that we all have a responsibility for ourselves and for each other. Yes. That was a great way to end this. Thank you so much, Moses. Beautiful. Thank you, Jesenia. Beautiful. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you so much for being here, for having, for still being here, for staying. Ooh, what does that make me emotional every time? But I just, I think about this and I think about everything that you guys have been through and it's just, it's terrible, it's horrible, but it's also inspiring and so uh it makes the rest of us want to survive too, just to be able to help. And um, so I'm excited for this to be a a platform and a springboard um, for this ongoing topic. And thanks for being brave and sharing. And uh, yeah, this conversation is not over, just to be continued. Yes, thank you so much, Em. I love you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and all the episodes. We hope you'll join our quickly growing online community where there is always someone to hold a space for you if you feel alone. If you have an idea for an upcoming guest or topic, please don't hesitate to reach out. All social media links and contact information can be found at my website, MaryAngelaAbeo.com. And until next time, take care of yourselves and those around you. And by that, I mean, wash your fucking hands, wear a damn mask, defund the police, pay the fee, basically continue fighting for the rights of indigenous and black lives everywhere, including and especially black trans lives, and do your part to abolish all forms of systemic racism. I'll see you next time.